Take your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 19. It is great to be back in the pulpit. (laughs) Exodus chapter 19, really one of those kind of major turning points in the entirety of the Bible. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, (laughs) Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. In the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet 
God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down. And come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Let's ask God's blessing. Lord, we pray humbly, asking that you would speak. You've spoken already in the reading of your word. We ask now that you would speak in the preaching of your word. Oh God, give us eyes that we might see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to start with an illustration from the greatest show in television history. I know, you're prepped for it. You're sitting on the edge of your seat. You're wondering, Antiques Roadshow, greatest show in television history. Ah, there's the groan. It works. Antiques Roadshow is a great show, in case you don't know what it is, on public television. I love it. Uh, It basically, uh, they go around uh, different parts of kind of the Anglo empire, so to speak, and uh, get a whole bunch of historians in a place and let people bring their junk to see how much it's worth. And the vast majority of the time, somebody brings their junk and this world-class historian who spent the last 40 years studying the three types of pottery in North Doncaster County that happened between the years of 1415 and 1612 tells them, yes, it's junk. But I think most people watch the show for that once in a blue moon kind of thing where somebody brings their stuff and for a change, it's not junk. We like that, right? We get excited where it's, you know, some, uh, you know, goofy person who brought this thing and it's like, oh, this is my grandmother's, 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 grandmother's thing and it belonged to, you know, General so-and-so and did such and such in the Revolutionary War and it killed so many British and you're like, well, no. And then they get the world-class historians like, no, it's French. It's not English at all, it's French, and it's worth $5 million, so stop talking and just take your money. Every once in a while, though, you get the ultimate, the greatest moment in the Antique Roadshow, and it's not when it's something valuable. 
my favorite. It's when you meet someone who is convinced it's valuable, even when the historian knows better. It's my favorite part, actually. And again, these historians are not the kind of historians that you see kind of generically broadband sort of historians. These are the people that literally have studied a half of one thing for four decades. They can look at pottery and know if it's real or fake by its smell. I don't know how. And the person will bring their thing and it's like, look, this is this amazing thing. And the story is like, yeah, it's junk. And they're like, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, oh, it's going to get good. This is why I watch the show. I love the show. <laughs> and occasionally you'll have the historian who's gracious and is like, well, let's look through some of the reasons why it's, you know, a fake. It's not actually made of porcelain. It's made of plastic. Plastic didn't exist in, you know, 1625. I love it. I love it. But occasionally you'll get someone who thinks that they're on par with a historian. And you're like, look, this person has a PhD in Iranian rugs from the 12th century. I didn't know where you could find that, but they have it. And the person will argue. I love it. I love watching it. The arrogance and presumption. Oh, it's just beautiful to watch. It's beautiful to watch because uh, we all know that's the nature we all share together. We thankfully are not often placed in situations where our arrogance and presumption is broadcast on you know, international television. That's why I'm glad I'm not on international television because I know that would happen given enough time. Three days. <laughs> Because that's the nature of the human heart. The nature of a fallen heart is to presume that it is greater and bigger and grander and more special and more powerful than it actually is. And normally it's kind of in the little, you know, decencies of life where we see that out and you argue with somebody over a McDonald's hamburger and whether or not you were charged $1.29 or $0.99 and who cares, it's worth a quarter. But occasionally, we get to see situations where that arrogance and that smugness and that presumption show up in the grandest of scales. And that's when you're like, ooh, this is going to be good television. Chapter 19 It's not good television. It's great scripture. What we have here is a mess. Israel, well, by every standard, every metric at this point, Israel is a mess. They go down to Egypt. They get very large. They get uh, very great numerically and still very weak because they're being starved to death. They're being enslaved. They're being beaten. It's an awful, awful thing. And God, in his mercy, remembers them. He brings them out of Egypt, and he brings them out of Egypt in all of the Sunday school stories we learned when we were a kid, and they are all true. How God does amazing miracles and sends amazing plagues and splits the sea and brings Israel out. And you think, man, they got to see the greatest display of power, really, of a generation outside the flood, I guess. 
And immediately they get out and they start whining and complaining. We're out of water. We're not in Egypt. I don't need water. We don't have food. And they complain the whole way through. Their track record at this point has not been particularly great. And I'm going to contend that they don't really continue. I mean, they continue that poor track record in chapter 19. This is, like I said, the major turning point because 1 through 18 has, in essence, been getting them to the place where they would meet God. Remember, they don't know that much about him. I mean, maybe the earlier story where it's like, well, you'll go go free Israel for me. Tell Egypt, you know, Pharaoh to let my people go. Like, um, what name should I use? I mean, I know, you know, not Horus, you're not Ra, you're not one of the, you know, gods of Egypt. Who are you? What should I say? Their knowledge of God is not robust like ours is. They know he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's not a full, rich knowledge of him. And he's taking them out into the desert to reveal himself to them, to show them who he is. Everything in Israel's history as a nation has been building to this point. It's like a a young couple where everything leading up has been building to the wedding day. Chapter 19 is the beginning of the wedding ceremony. Chapter 20 is the bit unexpected turn as to what actually happens in the ceremony. But 19 is where it starts. It's where God shows himself to his people so they may know who he is. And his introduction to the conversation is genuinely staggering. Verses 3 through 6, God introduces how he's going to interact with his people. And, I mean, this would be jaw-dropping. End of two, Israel camps before the mountain. Moses goes and talks to God. And the Lord says to him, hey, look, Moses, this is what you're supposed to go tell the Israelites. Israel, you remember what I did to the Egyptians. Well, Americans, what did he do to the Egyptians? He destroyed them all in terrible, terrible ways. All kinds of plagues, all kinds of boils, remember? I don't want to do that. Death of the firstborn. Having the sea swallow them and eat them. You remember, you saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I took care of you. I bore you in eagle's wings. Yeah, I mean, you've been walking you know, through the desert for you know, weeks at a time now, but I've provided water. I've provided food. I've provided safety. I've provided light. I've provided a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud to guard you. I've literally provided everything that you need. And I've done this to bring you specifically to myself to meet me. I've guided you to a specific place for a specific purpose that we may know one another. Now, therefore, this is the introduction. If you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, we're going to come back to that in a second. If you do that, then you'll be my treasured possession among all peoples for the earth is mine. Look, out of all of the people on the earth, you are going to be my most prized possession. And I love to think about how that would have kind of emotionally felt for the Israelites to hear that. Because about a month ago and change or so, what did the Israelites own? (laughs) Nothing would be the correct answer. They were enslaved in spectacular poverty. They owned very, very little. 
And as part of God bringing them out, the Egyptians basically throw their wealth at the Israelites and say, please take it, go here. Here's, you want some gold? Here's my gold. You want my pretty necklace? Here's my pretty necklace. And you can kind of imagine as you go to think about how the process would have happened of, you know, the, the neighbors are giving you things to latch onto that thing that you particularly like. I mean, can you imagine if after owning almost nothing, to have one of the neighbor wives come up to, you know, to your wife and say, here's a beautiful necklace. I want you to take this. And to think, this is my special necklace. I've had nothing. And yet God has given me this. It's my special thing. And God is saying, look, I have all of the riches of the world. I own the world. I own all of the people in the world. And you will be my special ones. I mean, you almost want to be like, God, do you remember who you picked? I mean, they've been enslaved. Don't even really have a standing army. They had to figure out how to do that earlier. They haven't learned how to take care of their stuff or their uh, money that they've just been given. It's all new money. And they complain. They just never stop complaining. My covenant will accomplish where you will be my treasured possession out of all of the earth. In fact, actually, one step further, you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Wow! Again, remembering the job of the priest is to be in relationship with God, to be uh, an intercessor, a mediator of a kind. And he's saying, look, when you think about your relationship with me, you'll all be priests because you'll all know me. You can think about thus far in the story of creation, the one thing that we know is that nobody knew him kind of directly through that kind of relationship apart from spectacular office. If you're at this point in human history, if you're born a lady, you you had no option to be in the priesthood of any kind. You, you, You only knew the Lord through other people's ministry. Here we have a kingdom where everybody is functioning this way and ministering God's truth to the world around. A holy nation. You see, God begins the conversation with a statement that he views his children as having unspeakable value. Unspeakable value. I love marveling at at the creation that God made. I read an article this week. We were uh, talking about it on social media. Some of us are really intriguing. Uh, A bunch of astronomers and kind of such started doing the math of the creation again. And they realized that they think that the earth is very old. Obviously, creation is very old. They realized their math was a little bit off, and they were wrong. They realized that the earth is a bit younger than what they thought. They were only off by a billion years. It made me chuckle. It just made me giggle. Like, how big is God? That our little decimal errors are a billion years. I don't think the earth is that old. But it just made me chuckle again to see the sense of scale. If you have a really good run, you may live, what, a hundred years now? <laughs> a decimal error is a billion years. This God who is so mighty and so grand and so great has said, My people are my treasure. Out of everything in creation that he's made. 
black holes, marvelous things. The little tiniest parts of the atom, the ones that we actually haven't even discovered yet. We think are there, but we haven't been able to prove. He's been enjoying those since he made them. To think of all of the various creatures that he's made, and the blobfish. You know, obviously, God has a sense of humor and has been laughing at his own creation, I'm sure, in some sense, with the blobfish. If you ever go look at that up this afternoon and marvel at what God makes, the most hideous thing is ugly as I'll get out. And yet, out of all, all, everything, his people will be his treasured possession. He, he frames out this glorious conversation, adding value and merit to his people. And that is a lovely thing, but it is perfectly ripe territory for the human ego to go, yep, I knew it, right on, ha, 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 I nailed it. That's exactly what I thought all along. I'm so glad that God confirmed my suspicions. This danger of presumption, of fullness of self. We see that Israel immediately fall into this trap. We're going to see a number of ways that God then further warns them against them, uh, against it. But they immediately fall into this trap. Verse 7, Moses comes and calls the elders of all the people, says before them all the words that the Lord has commanded, and go tell the people. So the elders take it out and they have a national conversation. This amazing national conversation, you get the impression the way the text reads, and certainly in the original language, it's very rapid. This is not a lengthy conversation. And it comes back, just you get the impression it's a few moments later, it's longer than that. But, and all the people are like, yeah, everything that God said we're going to do, we're all on board. Right? God said, if you keep my covenant, then I'll bless you with all these things, and we're right on with that. All right, yeah, woo. So what kind of key piece that we've missed? They don't know what the covenant is yet. They have no idea what the commands are. God could have been commanding them to levitate in space. And they're like, yeah, we'll do it right on. You see, I think a substantial aspect of what's taking place in Israel's interaction here they're presuming God's will for him. We, we would also call that mind reading. They're not waiting to listen to what God has to say to them or for them or about them or requiring from them. They're just like, yeah, I got it. I got this. I nailed it. I got it. I'm good. I got this thing figured out. We're all good, God. I'm fine. And we see this kind of happen in our lives periodically. Uh, one of the ways we see this type of pres- presumption show up is, you ever have that person, and if I've done this to you, I'm going to go ahead and say I'm sorry now, but uh, so maybe somebody hurts your feelings. And you go to talk to them about how they hurt your feelings. And before you can even start explaining how they hurt your feelings, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Let's be going to move on. Wait, 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 wait. You haven't heard how you upset me yet. You don't know what you're apologizing for yet. I have a sneaking suspicion that you're not actually apologizing at all. I suspect that what you're doing is saying I'm sorry to shut me up. Because you're not, you're not actually listening to what I'm saying. You're not trying to figure out what's in my mind. You don't, you don't know why my feelings were hurt. You don't know what you did that was wrong. You just say I'm sorry and try to make the whole thing go away. 
presuming my will for me, my emotions for me, my mind for me. Israel's doing this. They're saying, look, God, it's fine. Yes, we'll do whatever you say. We're we're already going to do all that the Lord commanded. I, I love that. They have no idea what that is. And you think, well, man, that's really silly of Israel to do that. I'm glad I never do that. And anytime you think that, you always do it. Just plan on it. How is it that we do that? I mean, we're not in that situation. I've never been to Mount Sinai. We don't exactly know which mountain it is. I've not been stuck in a situation where I'm waiting for God's word to be delivered from the mountain yet. I don't think you have either. But if you think about this type of presumption as a danger to not listen to God, but to listen to ourselves instead. Hebrews 1 begins long ago. God spoke to his people in many different ways and in many different times. He speaks to them out of a cloud, from a burning bush. That's just in this book so far. All kinds of different ways through the prophets and such. But now, the author of Hebrews says, he's spoken to us in the fullness of of his son. So that revelation has stopped. It's ceased. We don't, we don't get new information. We don't get new revelation from God. We have everything that we need to understand how to live and how to grow and who God is. And it is contained in this book. God's word, it is this book. God, God's word, everything. The fullness of God's revelation is here. Yet one of those great things that we love to do, and we do this so spectacularly as Americans, is to say we understand God's will without even consulting this. To say that we know what God desires for us without consulting this without understanding this. I remember a number of years ago, uh, this is the better part of a decade, uh, the president of our denominational seminary uh, at General Assembly answered the question, what does the average seminary student look like these days? And he said, well, I get to see a lot of them. Obviously, I don't get to see all students. We have other great seminaries that uh, feed into the PCA, obviously RTS, Greenville, we have other uh, Westminster He said, but for the seminary that he interacts with, one of the things that he's noticing about the younger students is they are intensely committed to their faith because oftentimes they had to pay a higher price than their parents did for it. But they have no knowledge of the Bible. It's like they're brilliant theologians, but their theology is not informed by the scriptures. It's like, it's amazing to think about how he's like looking at an entire denomination of a generation of students that are coming in that don't know their Bibles. Presumed God's will. We presume to know what he's like. We presume to know what he's thinking. Presume to know his opinion on matters when we do not consult it or the fullness of it or I guess maybe even sometimes a bit more commonly, we don't spend the effort to think about how to read it so that we just rip stuff out of context so it doesn't mean the things that it's supposed to mean. 
Right? Judas hung himself. Go and do likewise. <laughs> oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Two Bible verses put in the wrong context. Yeah, they jump in with both feet here saying, Ah, hey, we know what God wants. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. We'll be okay. We'll do everything that God wants. So Moses, <laughs> I love it, goes back and <clears throat> reports it to the Lord. Uh, this, I, this part to me reads so much like comedy. Verse 9, God says that he's going to come and meet with Moses and the people. Remember, he's been having private conversation with Moses on the mountain, but now he's saying, look, I'm going to have a conversation with the people themselves. And because this is not a small gathering of people like us, remember, it's probably, what, million to, you know, huge, huge nation. If we're going to have a conversation that the entire nation can partake in, it's going to be rather, might we say, impressive. Uh, we'll go do that. And uh, I love verse 9. Moses tells God what the people said. Um, God, they said this. Moses said, oh, okay. Well, if that's going to be the case, have them consecrate themselves. If they want to be in relationship with me, they need to be consecrated. So they need to go and wash their clothes, have their clothes washed and ready for the third day, and uh, partake, uh, don't partake in the marital bliss that would be normally expected in a population. Uh, stay away from the, uh, you know, human sexuality and such. And the Lord here is giving them an object lesson to help remind them of something. Think about, just pause for a moment and think about some of the logistics of this. Let's just, we'll imagine for small, you know, let's say it's 100,000 people. Actually, let's say 100,000 families. How long do you think it takes to wash 100,000 families' clothing at one spring? Uh, You just realized what happened here, didn't you? We read this as Americans and we think, oh, well, that's a silly thing because, I mean, we all wash our clothes at home. (laughs) No, you don't here. You wash your clothes corporately. And you wash their clothes by hand, and it takes a lot of effort. And remember how they're getting water at this point? God's miraculously providing it. This is a massive undertaking. And I love how the Lord does this. He he says, by the way, look, you need to have your laundry done in three days. And oh yeah, by the way, the easy part, don't partake in marital bliss. That's the easy part. Getting your laundry done is the hard part. He's reminding them that it's not something where not only can we not presume his mind, we we cannot presume that we deserve his presence. We can't presume to just waltz into it. He's giving them a massive logistical hoop to jump through to show them, look, you you don't just come waltzing in to God's presence. Getting into God's presence is difficult. It's demanding. We don't deserve it. It's not like, well, yes, we're peers. Okay, well, maybe it's like, you know, 1A and 1B. I'm just slightly less than God. So when I go into his presence, it's fine. It's deserved. I'm okay. And again, we we do this so much. We never do this intentionally. We do this accidentally. And the accidental pattern of how we do this is we say, Jesus was the one that saved me for my sins, and once he did that, now I'm good and I belong here. 
And the emphasis is all about this guy or that gal, whichever one you are. It's Jesus was the one who saved me from my sins, but now I'm the special one. I've got the special gifts. I've got the special family. I've got the special service to God. I'm the special one. (laughs) Well, just the logistics of this. Can you imagine? Moses goes back. He takes the command uh, to the elders. They take it to the, the wives. And can you imagine the collective groan that went through uh, Israel. Are you serious? We all have to have fresh laundry. I already did laundry this month. I'm not doing it again. <laughs> Think about the rotation they had probably set up. Right? This, these two rows, it's your week, then it's your week, then it's, you know, you get, oh no, everybody's in at the same time. Have a go. Have fun with that. To remind them there's a barrier that you don't just come into his presence. It's not about you. God is marvelous and different. Spectacular. 16 continues this. Uh, This is magnificent. On the morning where the people of God are to meet with him, God shows up. And he shows up with a number of things. A giant earthquake. Okay, man, that's off-putting. In the mountains, rock slides. That's yeah, significant. A gigantic cloud. They describe it's like a kiln going up. If you ever drive around here, particularly uh, when it's you know kind of clear out and particularly warm, you look at this like the steam stacks coming out. If you ever see like the nuclear power plant over there, you see like those giant like fluffy white clouds that are just pouring out of the steam stacks. Think that except a gigantic black cloud pouring, encasing, and encapsulating the entire mountain and just flowing up into the sky. And then in the middle of that, thunder and lightning shows up. Whoa. And then as all of God's people get ready, then the Lord calls them, and he calls them within the way the text describes it is a divine trumpet that doesn't just blow once, but it blows continuously and continues to get louder and louder and louder and louder until it's so deafening that you just can't even process what's happening. And the Lord gives them this unbelievably kind object lesson to remind them how small they are. Right? If I want to announce myself, I, good morning, head to your seats. God announces himself <laughs> a little differently. Why? Because our glory is a little different. The glory of mankind is simply a minor and minute reflection of God's majestic grandeur. And here we see just a little bit more of it peeled back within creation. And God is showing, look, it's a totally different kind of thing. Don't presume on my glory. It's greater than what you understand. And again... Oh, man, we do this. Oh, man, we do this. How quickly we 
rush into feeling great about ourselves. I also say there's a uniquely um, emotionally complicated version of this, which is to think so badly of ourselves that it's actually a way of saying how great we are. It's this presumption of value, of glory, of grandeur that's just not there. And I have to go a little bit faster than I want, but we'll get there. Moses goes up to talk. It's uh, just deafening. And the Lord speaks to Moses. And again, this is delivered so that all of the people can hear. And the interchange is, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. The Lord's just said, hey, look, if you keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession forever. And they get there. And what's the first thing God says? If they touch the mountain, I'm going to kill them all. Stop. Go tell them that again. Moses, I already did. I'll go tell them again. Verse 23, he, in the first conversation with the nation Israel, God goes back to the command he gave just the paragraph before and says, set a fence around the mountain. Don't let anyone on because if you do, you have to kill them. And in fact, their sin is so contagious, you can't touch them while you kill them. Because if you touch them while you kill them, they have to kill you too. So when you kill them, you stone them or you shoot them with darts or arrows or javelins, but you don't touch them. And again, what a presumption that we see. (laughs) We live with such a safe God, don't we? Oh, he would never do hard things. I mean, well, he might do against bad people, but we're not bad people, are we? I mean, you're all nice. Taking care of me and my family for over a decade, you're great people, right? Never have hard things happen in your life. We're not bad people. The Lord is training Israel again. He's, he's teaching them against the presumption that they understand God's values and that God is safe. Not that he won't protect them. He's already said he will. But to think that it's done from their values, from their perspective, from their ethics, from their way of thinking about it. We see this again, and we talk about it in communion uh, with the uh, fence around the table for the Lord's Supper. In you know, 1 Corinthians 11, where that is a book that is written specifically to Christians. Understand that. It says at the beginning of that book, it is written for Christians. And God says, oh, yes, some of you are doing communion so incorrectly. That's why I killed you. Wait, did God actually say that? I mean, we know that he kills bad people and he kills his enemies. But sometimes does he kill his own people? You see, what we're actually having challenged here is our actual doctrine of God. Because most of us have too small a doctrine. I mean, I I joke about it, but man, it's so true. We tend to think of God as just another version of a comic book hero. He's like me. He's just a bit bigger. He's a bit stronger, maybe a little bit smarter, maybe not. But he's just a comic book hero. And it's interesting that in the, 
the opening salvo of the wedding ceremony where Israel is in many ways knit to her God. Oh, no, they've made a mistake. I mean, you can think Moses coming back. Again, just the emotional process Israel's having to go through. What have we done? This is the God that just exterminated an entire nation for persecuting us. What have we done? How big and great is our God? You see, there's a problem here, and it's certainly a true one for us, is that as we reduce the size and scope and grandeur of this God in our mind, it reduces our understanding, our need, and our value for Jesus. Because you understand, if, if, if you're in the same mind as God, if you can presume His will, well, you don't have to listen to His Word. You don't need Christ. He is the Word of God. If you can presume that you deserve to be in His presence, well, you don't need a mediator. Why do you need a mediator? You don't need Jesus. You've got yourself. You're good to go. Well, if you can presume upon God's glory to say, look, our glory is it's synonymous, maybe a little smaller on my side. I don't need a Savior who is great and majestic. If I can presume upon God's safety that his values match mine, that he thinks the way I think he does the things that I do, well, I don't, I don't need Jesus' victory because I can accomplish my own. And the problem is, is that is just staggeringly, it is devastating for our, our, our Christian living. You see, we go to Hebrews chapter 12, where we started the service. That's actually the argument that is made in chapter 12, verses 18 and following. It was our call to worship. Look, Israel, when they showed up, they showed up to a situation that was utterly terrifying with a God that was far off where it was not possible. Be knit together those ways. But you have something different. Yes, we don't come to Mount Sinai, thank the Lord. We don't have the earthquakes and the tremblings and the lightnings. Thank the Lord. We don't have the prohibition around God's presence that if you step into his presence, you immediately die. Thank the Lord. And the reason is explained at the end of chapter 12 because Jesus already did that. How is it that we don't go with Mount Sinai? because we go to Mount Zion. Jesus has accomplished it. Verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 12, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to all of this happy, yay! Why? Verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. A different kind of relationship. I made the point during the... um, promise of pardon. I might have made it badly. might have confused you with the soccer illustration, but there was a good point there. The entirety of the Old Testament is to prepare us for the arrival of Christ so we understand the significance of it. There is, however, a grave danger that we presume to know God so well that we close the Old Testament and put it away. 
Because the Old Testament shows us so clearly his greatness, his majesty, his grandeur, why we need a Savior. And again, no, we would never do this intentionally, intellectually on purpose. And to think about this just, just briefly, very quickly. One of the, the simple ways we remind ourselves of this is how we pray. How do we finish our prayers? In Jesus' name, amen. It's all one word, right? Well, no. We say in the name of Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. What, what are we meaning with that? What we're meaning is the only standing I have the only value I have in this kingdom, the only relationship I have with my heavenly Father, the only way I may know God is through Jesus. Otherwise, this great and terrible God will consume me. And that is true at salvation. And that is true all through sanctification. And it is true in glory. The day I'm separated from Jesus would be the day I die. Spiritually, I'd be toast. Today, I'm still knit to him. So are you. It is important, and I'll end with this application, to be reminded that every aspect of your Christian development, your spirituality, your love, your growth, your obedience is done in Christ Jesus today. Just because you've been a believer for 75 years doesn't mean he's any less important to you. You didn't just need his power to get saved. You need to be connected with him always. It's weird to think that Exodus chapter 19 is already setting the stage for that. But certainly what the author of Hebrews thought. That the terror of this mountain is to point us to the greatness and importance of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we thank you. It's in his name that we come to you. And it's in his name that we ask that, oh God, work in us. Forgive us for our small opinions of you. Oh, how evil that is. Change our minds. Change our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.